taken the same vacation every year since 1989, except for one year. My buddy Rich and I head south on I-5 out of the Portland area and travel to Monterey, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Pebble Beach, and Pacific Grove. We play golf and view extraordinary historic and vintage automobiles. Yeah, I can't believe I've actually attended the Pebble Beach Concord Delegance 28 times this August. Next month will be my 29th. Uh, it sort of started out as a fluke. Uh, Rich, we worked together at a radio station in Portland, and he was going down one year with a couple of friends. Uh, I, I know he went in 88. We worked together. The next year, he says, you should go with us. We had fun. So we took off on like a Thursday night and came back on Sunday night. It was just a really quick turnaround. Had a great time. We did it the next year and the next year. Uh, I missed one year in 1992. My son was born. He was three weeks old. I thought that was bad form to, you know, leave his mom home alone with a three-week-old baby. So waited till the next year. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one year we missed attending the show because we had car troubles about eight or ten years ago and didn't make it all the way there, although we made it to San Francisco and across the Golden Gate. Anyway, that's another story. So uh, this is Tim Patterson. This is Trade Show Guy, Monday Morning Coffee for July 15th, 2019. Did you know I publish a blog? And the blog is over 10 years old. That's right. There's like hundreds and hundreds of articles there. Uh, lots of people find the blog because of all the articles there. It's at tradeshowguyblog.com. You may be watching or listening to this show on that blog because they all get embedded there, the videos and the audios. Did you know I publish a weekly newsletter every Tuesday morning? You can subscribe at tradeshowguyblog.com. Did you know we build great Trade show exhibits, my company, Trade Show Guy Exhibits. Uh, look for a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> a lot of great clients we work with. Uh, maybe you could be the next one. Who knows? Uh, go to tradeshowguyexhibits.com for that. So glad you could make time to check out the show this week. It's a fun one for sure, and it kind of uh, relates to that trip in a way that uh, Rich and I make every year to the Monterey Bay area because after today's guest, Ken Newman and I met several years ago, he's in San Francisco. We said we got to stop and visit Ken, although the story we met online uh, on Twitter and we had a number of phone conversations before we met in person and really hit it off. Ken's in San Francisco. And when we come back north uh, from our from our weekend down there, uh, we usually stop and have coffee or lunch or something with him if schedules allow. And it doesn't always allow. So it's been a couple of years. We'd like to do that again next year. Uh, speaking of Ken, I've had him on the podcast slash vlog before talking about his business, Magnet Productions which is a really fascinating uh, business and uh, a very a very successful one. But he's got other stuff going on that I was curious to talk to him about, including his music and some of the work he's done with uh, a nonprofit down there, Blanket the Homeless in San Francisco. Fascinating story how that all came together, and this is how that interview went. I want to welcome to Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee this morning, uh, Ken Newman of Magnet Productions. Ken, it's so great to see you. It's been a while. Uh, it's, it's such yeah. a pleasure. It's a pleasure to see you, too, even through this. Uh, this I know, through this thing here. So thing um, we we've did. known each other for a decade, maybe. I don't know. It's been or longer. Yeah, it's, and, it's been. And taken. we kind of run into each other now and then. And, and uh, yeah, when you're down but, in Monterey looking at all the beautiful cars. You I know. We're down there. Uh, yeah. My buddy and I go down to Pebble Beach and come back through uh, your neck of the woods and, and say, hey, when we can. So anyway, uh, it's fun to catch up. We, I wanted to met on Twitter. And on Twitter, yeah. We, that's where we met. That's that where we met, I know. Remember, it was a beautiful tweet. We shared tweets for a we while. We shared tweets. And then I picked up the phone and said, who is this guy? And, uh, and we hit it off. So, <laughs> so I'm curious to ask you uh, about three topics. Number one is Magnet Productions. You've had that company for a long time, and, and it seems Almost, to be yeah, doing pretty well. 20, 
close to 25 years to the best of my recollection, I think, something like that, yeah. <laughs> so exactly what you do if some somebody came along and said, what do you do? What What's the story? Okay, well, the quickest way to say it, um, we basically use, you know, the, the term infotainment has come out to sort of uh, as an all-encompassing all phrase for a marriage of information and entertainment. And, and we started, and it's interesting because that's used as a, as a catch-all thing for, for magicians and jugglers and comedians and whatnot. But from the very beginning, our, um, our, our concept in, in terms of uh, trade show entertainment or trade show marketing was to use entertainment to accomplish that. So even before we started incorporating magic and a lot of other specialty skills, our, our presenters would always We'd like to talk about breaking the fourth wall. We'd really try to engage with the audience. Often we would have a presenter on stage. We might have somebody in the audience pretending to be an attendee who was actually a heckler. And the audience would be really uncomfortable for a while while this dialogue played out that just didn't seem like it was right. And the guy was a little bit too knowledgeable, but still kind of weird and filled with bags filled with uh, trade show swag and kind of calling out the speaker. And then finally taking the stage, taking the microphone over. And then the audience realized, oh, okay, we don't have to get security. This is actually a routine. And when we realized how successful that was, <clears throat> just in terms of differentiating our clients' booth from every other booth of the trade show that was just a person standing there with a, a clicker and 247 PowerPoint slides and saying stuff like, we offer you 24 by 7 mission critical paradigm shifting to enable cross-platform deliver that stuff. We thought, yeah, let's try to figure out humor. And so our focus is to do, you know, we use a formula of 80% content, 20% humor, but we, our presentations are all scrupulously researched. And then we take that information, figure out, okay, what's a great way to tell this story in a, in a way that's entertaining, but still really conveys a lot of content. And, and the principle is based on my first acting job doing educational theater. We realized that there are certain mechanisms, <clears throat> music, comedy, magic, you know, some kind of visual reference point for a particular story uh, that a client wants to tell. If they're talking about security and a guy is standing up there with slides, that's one way to do it. If we're talking about security and somebody's on a unicycle getting out of a straitjacket while he's delivering an eight-minute presentation that's completely, you know, on point, and 250 people are, are watching this, going, "Did they get a guy from shipping yeah, really. <laughs> be that good?" And, you know, it creates this wonderful cognitive dissonance that makes people go, "Like, I got, I got to watch this. I don't." And and to the point of, you know, how sticky the message becomes. Two hours after the show, somebody will say. Well, what do you remember? Well, this guy was riding a unicycle. Well, what was he talking about? Um, and suddenly they'll remember two right. or three key points because it's connected to a visual emotional uh, condition, you know, a visual that they got and an emotional condition that they experienced. Similarly with magic, if I take two 20s and turn them into 100, talking about two disparate technologies coming together, two hours after the show, somebody will say, yeah, I remember the 220, he made a $100 bill. He was talking about... Uh, uh, Hitachi and you know whatever and he and it sticks so yeah. that's kind of our principle in a nutshell is just to make it sticky make it entertaining and somehow I still find it really compelling and fun to do after 25 years so and you do some of it but you also have some yeah. hired guns as it were that uh, kind of work uh, across the country do, is it out of, out of the U.S. or is it just in the U.S.? Well we do about 150 events a year now um, I'm very happy to say and I've got probably 50 or 60 well, probably more. We just had a party for a bunch of people and there were 50 people there. So maybe wow. 75 um, presenters, people who literally just get up there and talk to the audience. They don't have the ability to, you know, make something disappear, um, you know, or cut something in half or do whatever. They're just presenters, but they're brilliant. Andy Sachs is one of them and you know yep. him well yep. and you talk to him uh, on this very program. And, you know, they have the ability to really engage, connect with the audience 
So we've got people that are doing that. I've got magicians all over the place. I've got jugglers and comedians, people who do game show hosts, people who might run a, a blackjack game at a trade show. We do shows all over the world. Um, I've got three or four clients I'll be doing at Jitex in Dubai coming up in October. Um, I'm doing a show myself in Vegas next week, and I've got five other clients there, um, Everything, doing everything from straight presentation to magic. Um, so yeah, about 150 shows and however many, 75 different people. I do, one of the nice things about being the boss, I can kind of select the ones that I want to yeah. do. You know, <laughs> Barcelona, you know, I'm like, yeah. Detroit, I'm in the middle of winter. You know, I mean, Detroit's yeah. a cool town, but in the middle of winter, I might just blow that one up. You know, so. we can talk Barcelona. That's where I honeymooned six years ago. So you oh know. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Well, if you know, it's uh, if you're going back, I've gone. We've you know, I'm so happy. A lot of companies, or a lot of uh, event planners or whatever, decide to do their trade shows there. Yeah. Uh, Mobile World Congress is there. Cisco Live Barcelona, and I've I've gone a number of times. I love the place. But yeah, we're um, nice place, yeah. I get to do. I try to do about fifteen maybe 20 a year if you know or less i'm trying to move less you know i'm trying to move away from actually presenting myself and more producing and creative directing and then kind of transition into the other part of my life so you know which is which we can lead to the next one but i'm amazed that caught I, you at home, I did you know? a segue for you or what <laughs> you <laughs> set that up whoosh, really me. I don't uh, know. you know when when one of the things you mentioned here a few years ago when we met in person for coffee you said i'm gonna i'm doing some recording i'm gonna do more of that you you obviously are uh, doing a lot of music you're involved in music you're a guitar player singer writer tell me a little bit about what's going on with that that sounds like a fun thing you're doing oh man it is it, you it's know, your soul isn't it yeah it, yeah it really is and it's 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 funny i was you know i was uh, i started learning guitar when i was 12 13 years old played a lot coffee houses you know i thought it was a great way to meet girls play sensitive songs on acoustic guitar it didn't work but you I learned guitar, guitar. That's right yeah exactly it worked i learned the guitar so that's good you know and then picked up piano and <clears throat> never really did any writing but i was playing a lot of rock and roll songs and in a lot of rock and roll bands and then for the big chunk of the middle of my life i just kind of didn't do it anymore i was doing it for corporate events had the opportunity to live out a fantasy camp dream, um, played with a full 10-piece lineup, uh, doing a Bruce Springsteen thing at Shoreline Amphitheater for 30,000 people, 40,000 for Sun Microsystems. That, yeah, I would have paid for that gig. I don't think yeah. if Scott McNeely, the then CEO, had any idea how hot I was to do this. <laughs> he never would have given me as much money as he did. But it was, it was a great experience. But then I kind of stopped. I just was very involved with my son, who was little, and doing trade shows and corporate events. And then about 10 years ago, somebody asked me to front a rock and roll band. And I said, yeah, sure, what the heck, you know, and I did. And it was fun for a while. And I, I still, you know, get together with these guys. And then about five years ago, I decided I wanted to try just me and a drummer. You know, I, that's what my memory from growing up was wheeling my Marshall lamp across the street to Ira Sikowski's house. And he had a drum kit in the garage. And we would just bang away for, you know, three, four hours. And, and I realized, you know, if you have just a drummer, I mean, Black Keys, White Stripes, they did five. That's Steely Dan was mostly just two people yeah, for a yeah. while. Um, you got one phone call to make if you want a gig. You call the drummer. Is he available? Good. You're on. You don't have to coordinate with five or six people. And I figured, okay, great. That's what I'll do. And so we did. We gigged for a couple of years. But right when I started that, I decided, and I'm going to put these kind of two stories together, I decided that I didn't really need to make money as a musician. Not that <laughs> that's all that easy anyway. And uh, that I would donate the money to charity and specifically homeless charities in San Francisco. So I started with a few of those, and they would come to these events uh, and rep representing their charity and talk to the crowd. And bit by bit, I noticed the crowds were picking up, the amount of money in the tip jar was doubling, tripling, quadrupling. People would, 
would would uh, match that with a check from the bar and uh, and Google picked up uh, and doubled something for one of the organizations we were benefiting. I think it was Compass Family Services. And then I got on Margaret Cho's radar. And Margaret Cho is a wonderful comedian who, right, right after Robin Williams died, decided wanted to, she wanted to honor his memory. And he was a great philanthropist. I mean, raised, I don't know, $60, $70 million through comic relief with uh, Whoopi Goldberg yeah. and Shirley Crystal. Yeah. And he um, did a lot of really kind of under the radar stuff in San Francisco, and she wanted to, to honor that. And so she started a thing called Be Robin. And I found out about it, and somehow I found her on Facebook, and she said, yeah, meet me here and start playing guitar. Next thing I know, I'm playing guitar. There's a news crew. There's pictures on the cover of the newspaper. I'm working with guys like Bob Mould, who's one of my, like, heroes, and, yeah. you know, Roger Rocha from Four Non Blondes and Mia Simmons from, um, from Frightwig, and all these people are kind of collaborating on this thing. We're playing on the street, raising tons of money, and start to move indoors to some of the bigger venues in the city. And then over time... You know, Margaret um, had to take off her career, kind of called her again. And so I try to keep the B. Robin thing afloat. And then two years ago, two and a half years ago, a woman named Bronica Blue, who's been a friend of mine for years, said that a friend of hers had told her about giving out emergency blankets in uh, Boston during the winter, the little Mylar blankets. And wouldn't it be a great thing to do here? So I said, yeah, what are you looking for? She said, money. I said, I can do that. And so I got on Amazon, bought about a thousand of them, sent them some to her. And then I started bringing them to my gigs. I said, all right, here, I'll toss them out to the audience and everybody, instead of walking past the guy on the street, hand him a blanket, you know, and tell him what it is and how it can help him stay warm. And then over time, this kind of transition, I was giving, I bought more stuff on Amazon. I bought gloves and socks and hats and condoms and antiseptic creams and first aid kits. Had somebody write up a, um, a brochure that had listings of free food and shelter throughout the city of San Francisco, package that up in a Ziploc bag. I would bring those to shows and hand those out to the audience. And it, this whole thing snowballed. So it's recently wow. St. Vincent de Paul Society of San Francisco, huge organization, been around for 150 years or so, says, you know, we like what you're doing. Why don't you work through St. Vincent de Paul? You can leverage our nonprofit status and you'll have a page on our website. Then all of a sudden I have the credibility of being involved with a huge organization. Um, I, back to music, I have an album coming out in about five months called Dreaming of Guns. I just released a single from that today which is on CD Baby, should be on uh, spot. It's on Pandora now, be on Spotify tomorrow, I think, um, called uh, Nothing to See Here. And um, the producer, Scott Mickelson, who's producing my album, said to me one day after he'd had a success with a thing called After the Fire that he did. It was a, um, a fundraiser, a compilation CD to benefit people uh, who were victimized by, sadly, not the last fire, but the one before that, the one up in Napa County. Uh, and then... Um, in the North Bay, Santa Rosa, that area. And um, he said, I'd like to do that for Blanket the Homeless. He said, let me see what what artists I can I can get interested. And he got Fantastic Negrito, who just won his second Grammy Award. And <laughs> Conbrio and Brothers Comatose and Rainbow Girls and Whisker Man. And I uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Scott Mickelson himself has a track. I'll have a track on it. We got so many artists that it's a double, and you look right behind you, you see all that. It's vinyl. We are yes, nice. <laughs> a double vinyl. We have a beautiful cover. Uh, it should be released in October or so. We've got a concert at the, um, I believe, the Independent in San Francisco in November, an album release. And uh, all of the artists donated their, uh, their, um, their tracks. They came to Mill Valley, most of them, to record them. Uh, Scott did all the production work. I'm executive producing, which essentially means money, um, and which is fine. All of the proceeds, album sales, ticket sales, everything is going to go directly to Blanket the Homeless. And, 
it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, I, somebody said, you know, well, you've, you've kind of like moved through into music pretty deeply in a short period of time relatively. And I said, you know, it, it's not like, I mean, I think I'm a good songwriter and I think the stuff I've written is interesting. It's about this connection to the homeless community. I mean, I kind of made a decision that wasn't really by design. It wasn't, uh, oh, this is going to be really successful. It was like, well, I don't need the money as a musician, so why don't I do something good with it? And then all of a sudden, it felt like the world started to conspire to help me. You know, this local music community is unbelievable. I mean, there's something called Local Vocals, which is a um, something started by a guy named Theo McKinney, who basically let, let singer-songwriters play in hotels, and they've set up sound systems at a number of hotels in the city. So now there's all these little venues where you can play for an hour, do your own material, work on some new stuff, entertain some people's drinking. You know, you got an audience that's already drinking. I mean, come on, you know, it's like, and free wine. I mean, please. I mean, but it all became uh, because of your love of music and wanting to get, to get back into it. And all, it seems like one day after another, another step fell into place and it yeah, was like a logical thing exactly to do. Right. Now here you are. It's, right. It's that feeling of like, you know, you lead with, you know, instead of being like really empirical and like, here's a strategy, here's a tactic, here's what I'm going to do. I just led with this, you know, it was just yeah. sort of like, this is something I'm that doing I music because I like it. And oh, my, my goodness, look what's happening. So yeah, it's the kind of thing that makes you want to keep making those decisions, decisions that are just heart based instead of. So a couple things. Where can people find your your single and, and then where can they uh, help out on Blanket the Homeless if they'd like to? Well, thank you for asking the um, uh, in order of increasing importance. We'll start with the single. The single is called uh, Nothing to See Here. It's the second single I released about a month ago. I released a single called um, I Can't Breathe. For Which Eric I heard just yesterday, yeah, 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 and that's for Eric Garner. That was, you know, about the uh, kind of the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter um, movement, and uh, so that can be found um, <clears throat> quite literally searching on Spotify. Apparently, Pandora now has a Ken Newman Music channel. Um, Amazon Music has it. iTunes or Apple Music has it. Um, the uh, the first tune for sure, I can't breathe, and nothing to see here within the week. That's also available on CD Baby, or if you just go to Facebook and look for Ken Newman or Ken Newman Music, you'll find it. Um, the charity is uh, listed on Facebook as well. It's uh, Blanket the Homeless. If you go to blanketthehomeless.org, you'll find uh, our website. The charity is listed on Facebook under um, under Blanket the Homeless. Um, so you can do a search for Blanket the Homeless on Facebook, look for fundraiser, and uh, it's up there. It's, I think we've got we're about 3000 into a $5,000 goal. We've already raised 8000 through a previous fundraiser. So I'm, I'm quite honestly moved, deeply moved by the, 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 the generosity of people that I know that we're all living in rough times. And yeah. people are stepping up with $100, $150 that I honestly know they can ill afford. I mean, and this is true of some musicians. And this is particularly um, telling when it's coming from people like on the East Coast. I mean, it's specifically benefiting the Bay Area, but somehow, you know, it's- yeah, just, every, it's every the, community has their has people, their challenges, the you know? Yeah. And, it's, and, and so to, to help uh, around the world, I just, you know, the, 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 we have a homeless community here in Salem, obviously, it's pretty bad yeah, in Portland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and everyone needs help. And uh, I, I really appreciate that you're able to step up and, and get involved with all these people. It sounds like, obviously it's a community effort, you can't do it yourself, but you oh, know. no, it's a game of inches too. You know, you start, I mean, I'm one guy, I've got like, people said, well, what's the infrastructure of, uh, you know, blanket the homeless. I said, you're looking at it. Yeah, this right. is it. I got some Ziploc bags. I got a bunch of crap that I stick in the Ziploc bags and I throw them out to people, you know, uh, when I, at a, at a, at a bar and hope they'll turn away from uh, whatever's on the tube, you know, too. And that's the thing that's interesting is that 
these same clubs that I would play where people would barely pay attention. I'll stop in between songs and say, hey, I just want to let you know a little bit about what we're doing. You see that tip jar. You look out the window. You see these guys walking by, you know, people with PTSD, people that three, four months ago had apartments in San Francisco that are now living on the streets. This is why we're doing it. And bit by bit, you can feel this kind of title shift in the room. People stop talking. They stop watching TV. It's kind of mind-boggling. And I, and I think part of it is, you know, there but for the grace of God oh, goes man. I, you know. So and people and, are one paycheck away from that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Ken, it's great to catch up. I really appreciate your time. And I do hope to see you uh, in, in about five or six weeks in the Bay Area when I – pass through and back on the- i'm looking for i'm looking for uh, uh for a new car so if you're going to be down there just take a picture yeah. of, you know i'm probably not quite rolls royce but if you find like a Bentley? reasonably, reasonably <laughs> priced ferrari a model of one one of the little a used one right the plastic ones yeah right, yeah, right. ken it's always fun thank you so much thank you tim i really appreciate it Thanks again to Ken for uh, spending time uh, on the show today. Really appreciate it. Check the show notes for links. Time for uh, this week's uh, trade show tip of the week. It's actually a list from my book, uh, Trade Show Superheroes and Exhibiting Zombies. There's a list, actually, of things not to do. 20 dumb things exhibitors do, you know, just by attending trade shows and watching people that are exhibitors. Um, <laughs> you can start to compile a list of dumb things they do. So if, if I give you the list, maybe you'll... You'll recognize yourself in there, or maybe you'll say, I would never do that. Uh, but then you might see, hear something and go, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Anyway, here's the list. Uh, just kind of poking fun. Number number one, show up understaffed. You can't be understaffed. It just doesn't work very well. Number two, neglect to train your staff. When your staff shows up at the booth, they need to know what's going on and why they're there. Uh, number three, show up with nothing more than a booth and some people and no plan. So that doesn't work either. Uh, but I've seen it happen. Number four, forget to update the graphics, which would reflect new products or services. You've seen booths with graphics that are, you know, three, four, five years old, and they've got something different in the booth than what's reflected there. Uh, number five, fail to keep the booth clean. Really, a, a clean booth is a good booth. Number six, ignore visitors. You see this all the time. It's a dumb thing to do, though. Number seven, stand in the booth with your arms folded. You know, your body language is basically saying, stay away from me. So there's something to be said for not doing that. Number eight, wait until the last minute to call your graphic production company with a change of graphic plans. And then you're hustling. And then you're, you're just like a fire drill. Number uh, nine, wait until the last minute to do anything. Exhibit planning and execution usually takes twice as much time as you think. So if you think you got like three months, start five or six months ahead of time. That way you'll get it all done. Uh, number 10, being indecisive, letting time slip by, and then being forced to make quick decisions because when you do that, you know, they may not be the best decisions you can make. Uh, number 11, think that trade show convention is your time to party, baby. Uh, you know, party's till 3 o'clock. Sure, why not? Yeah, that's kind of a dumb thing to do. Number 12, bringing a generic brochure to where you should be promoting a specific product or service to that specific audience. Number 13, uh, thinking there's only one way to do things and remaining inflexible. Even in the midst of a show, I've advised and I've seen uh, clients change things around in the booth, move counters and move tables and things from day to day just because they want to see how it works and how the traffic flow is affected and things like that. Always always good to experiment. Number 14, failing to listen to your customers. A trade show is a perfect place to do you know, mini polls and customer research. Number 15, not taking a break 
when you clearly need it, which means going back to number one, uh, showing up understaffed. If you have enough staff, you can schedule those breaks and people get a break and go sit down and do what they need to do, have lunch. Uh, number 16, failing to collect pertinent information from each prospect, you know, contact information, follow-up details, so on and so forth. There's a whole science and art to getting the right information and making sure the next step is in place before you let that person go. Uh, number 17, neglecting to confirm with your prospect exactly when your next contact will be and what that contact will specifically address. Number 18, not taking advantage of early booking for next year's show before you leave this year's show. Uh, it usually saves you time and gets you a better spot. Uh, number 19, failure to watch every nickel or dime so you plan next year's show by taking into account this year's cost savings. It's easy to overspend at trade shows by signing up for things too late. You're paying extra fees and things like that. And finally, number 20, failing to debrief your staff at the end of every day while it's fresh in their minds. And when you get when you do that, you get good suggestions and good comments and good feedback, stuff you can implement the very next day. So that's my list of 20 dumb things exhibitors do. You can find the book, Trade Show Superheroes and Exhibiting Zombies at Amazon.com. Uh, it's really just a compilation of a lot of lists I've published in the blog over the years a lot of revised ones some some updated ones and things like that and this week's uh, one good thing to wrap it up bicycling summer is my time for bicycling winter is my time for skiing so let's make bicycling the one good thing although i'm not doing it as much of it this summer because i'm i'm really busy focused on another project it's kind of a, a longer uh, project which is the, the, the clock is ticking as a house i've owned for 21 years that i'm getting ready to sell and as a my my old neighbor across the street said to me when I was over there yesterday, I said, you know, it almost seems like it's harder to get a house ready to sell than it is to be a homeowner and live in it because <laughs> there's so much to do. And like I say, the clock's ticking. But I am getting time three or four times a week to get out and, and ride my bike for eight or 10 miles a day. It's a good 40 to 45 minute ride. And uh, I love it. It's, it's my way of kind of de-stressing. That is it for this week's Trade Show Guy Monday morning coffee. Have yourself a great week. I'm Tim Patterson, Trade Show Guy. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening.